Good evening. This is the Wine of Life podcast. I'm Wes, and today we're going to be looking at Cyprian of Carthage. We're going to be talking about on uh, his work on unity in the church and uh, Epistle uh, 59 that he wrote to Cornelius, who was at the time the Bishop of Rome. So we're going to be using these books from the patristic, popular patristic series, uh, Cyprian of Carthage here. Um, the commentary and translation was done by Alan Brent. So um, just to let you know what we're using. I'll go over a little bit of Cyprian's life first. Um, his name is Thasius uh, Cecilius Cyprianus. I'm hoping I'm getting that right. Um, he was born, they believe, in 202 A.D., he was baptized around 246. He was a very wealthy man. He was a pagan. Um, he was, um, they think he was probably an orator or he practiced law. So he's very, he was a very intelligent man. Um, around 248, two years after his baptism, he was elected as Bishop of Carthage, which caused a great controversy. Um, you had to go through a lot of things to get to be a bishop, and it took a long time for you to work in smaller sort of jobs to get you to the point where you could be uh, elected as bishop, but the people loved him, and uh, some of the bishops as well loved him. He gave a lot of his money as well to people in the city. Um, so in 249 through 250, Dacian Trajan uh, brought persecution by forcing sacrifices to the gods of Rome. So there was a long period of time where um, there was no persecution for Christians at this point in time. So we're still talking about early 3rd century, uh, now mid 3rd century. Um, but now it had come back. They had believed that Rome had gone down a little bit because of the, they had not been sacrificed to their gods appropriately. And so they started doing that. So Fabian, the bishop of Rome, was martyred. Uh, but Cyprian went into hiding, which caused more controversy. There were already people who disagreed with his being bishop because he hadn't been um, involved in the church long enough. Now, when the um, particular uh, persecution came, he fled away. Um but he defended it and uh, ended up being able to come back. But then after Fabian was put to death, a fight between Cornelius and Novation started over the, who would be the Bishop of Rome. And this uh, persecution caused the great controversies that Cyprian then found himself in between. Um, it started that this uh, a Novatus and then later a man named Philosimius, I hope I'm saying that right, probably not, they started a Church of the Martyrs, people who had decided to sacrifice to the gods or created their own certificates to give to Roman officials so it would seem as if they had sacrificed to the gods, um, that they were started a church that they were going to put themselves back in amongst the church without doing any uh, public repentance or penance as Cyprian saw it. And this was something that, as Bishop of Carthage, he said was unacceptable. Um, a lot of other bishops also agreed with him, but they started their own little schismatic group saying, we don't have to publicly do any penance or repent of this. And Novation in Rome started his, um, his schism in that he was saying, we're not going to let anyone who sacrificed to any of the Roman gods there is no repentance. There is no way back for them. They are uh, excommunicated from the church forever. And so they believe they were sort of holy in their sense. So they were sort of um, legalistic in their approach. 
Um, Cornelius ended up ultimately becoming the Bishop of Rome, but Cyprian had to deal with these two schismatic groups who basically, what he, what he called them, he put their own pseudo-bishops in charge. And so he started writing letters about how to deal with schismatics and how to bring about unity. I think it's very um, pertinent to today as well with regards to how the church is going. But I'm going to read from On the Unity, and then I'm going to read from Epistle 59 as well with regards to how he sees the particular problems. Um, this is what he says to, to say about Satan and how he is involved in the schismatic issues. He says, For the persecution which rages at Satan's open attack is not only our cause of our fear, even when God's servants are thrown in disarray and mortally struck down. Caution comes more easily where the threat is openly publicized and the spirit is equipped in preparation for the engagement when one's adversaries declares himself. Our enemy is more to be feared and treated warily when he creeps up secretly. When assuming deceitfully an image of peace, he moves serpent-like, and those hidden approaches from which Satan receives the name of serpent, that is always his slyness, whereby a human being is ensnared. That is his hidden and shadowy means of deception." Thus, Satan has deceived right from the beginning, and seducing souls with lying words, he deceived those that were green with a trustfulness that was less than careful. Thus, trying to tempt our Lord himself, he made his approach secretly, as if again to surprise and throw off course. However, he was discovered and checked and thus overthrown when recognized and uncovered. So, he's saying that it is not just the issue of the Roman Empire trying to put people to death and persecuting them. There is another agenda by Satan that is underneath, that is within the church, um, that is going to bring about uh, schism, and which is worse than the open persecution by the Romans. The open persecution is something that you can deal with easier rather than something in secret. And so he discusses then what the church ought to be built on, what is the solid foundation of how we can bring about unity. He says, Christ himself has instructed with his words, if you wish to enter life, obey my commandments. And again, if you do what I command you, I call you then not servants, but friends. These are the kind of people then that he calls strong and steadfast, established on a rock with a firm foundation, fastened together with a constancy that is unmovable and unshakable against all the storms and whirlwinds of this age. Christ says, he who hears my words and does them, I will liken to a wise man who has built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods approached, the winds came and beat upon that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded upon a rock. So take your stand, therefore, on his words. Whatever he also has taught and done, we ought also to learn and to do. How can someone who does not do what Christ has ordered him to do say that he believes in Christ? And by what means can he reach the reward of commitment when he does not want to preserve his commitment to what is commanded? Of necessity, he must waver and wander, and carried by, away by a spirit of air, be tossed to and fro, just like the dust that the wind blows up. So the rock that we're founded upon is Jesus Christ, what he has taught and what he has done. So we find our feet, essentially, and the ability to be able to say who we are and be, to be able to stand on what we believe. We find that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is his warning here. Casually staggering towards salvation does nothing to achieve the end of treading salvation's true path. I think that's a brilliant statement that he puts here, that um, staggering towards salvation ru ruins the witness 
of the church. It doesn't mean that people within the church aren't saved, but if we're not living according to what the Word is, we're going to end up leading people astray. That doctrine is absolutely vital and important to live by, and that putting false doctrine into the church is actually can be a worse enemy than anything that the world may throw at the church. And that was what he was really struggling with. So there, he, he discusses the secret agenda, and then we move on to the heresy and the schisms. Now, I'm not going to go into whether or not you, you agree with the primacy of the papacy. I don't. Um, he... I don't think that he does either, but there's two aspects of the text when he moves on through this through this point. So I'm going to read it because it, it's just it's important into this particular work, but it doesn't have a lot to do with what we're trying to discuss about unity here. But I'm going to talk about the received text and then the primacy text. So one is accepted by a lot of the parts of the church. The other is accepted by... Uh, the Roman Church as being a proof text of, of the of primacy. I don't think either one actually supports the primacy of the papacy, but I'll read it for you. It says, "In the same Jesus, after his resurrection, said to Peter, "Feed my sheep. Upon him he builds his church, and to him he hands over in trust his sheep to be fed. And although he might assign to all the apostles equal power, he, however, established one chair and ordained by his own authority that chair as the source of unity and its guiding principle. That's the received text. Now, here he says all the apostles have been assigned equal power. So, I think that's pretty clear, but this is what he says in the other one, the primacy text, as it's called. On one man he builds his church, and although he assigns to all the apostles after the resurrection equal power with the words, just as the Father sends me, also I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you will forgive the sins of anyone, they will be forgiven him. If of anyone you will retain them, they will be retained. John 20, 21 through 23. Nevertheless, in order that he might reveal their unity, he ordained by his own authority that the source of that same unity should begin from the one who began the series. The remaining apostles were necessarily also that which Peter was, endowed with an equal partnership, both of honor and power. But the starting point from which they begin is from their unity with him in order that the church of Christ may be exemplified as one. So even here, he openly states that all of the apostles received the same amount of power as Peter, but that the source of unity was Peter, that there was supposed to be, of the whole of the church was supposed to be of one mind, and that started with Peter. Peter was the one who made the ultimate confession in Matthew 16, that you are the Son of God, you are the Christ. That is what Peter told to Christ. And from there, upon that confession of faith, the unity of the church is founded. That is the rock, the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, And so he claims that from Peter we get our unity, but all of the apostles have the same power. So he does not claim, I don't see anywhere where it kind of moves towards the primacy of the seed of Peter. But some people would say that the second text that I read, uh, in fact, does say that. But I, I don't see it as saying that. But the, the, the thing is, is that where then do we find our unity, though? Obviously, there are going to be people who have different ideas of what, um, of how to interpret certain parts of Scripture. So on heresy and schism, this is how, where he gets to the point of what it means to be a heretic or what it means to bring about schism. He actually attacks the moral character of them, and I think this is important to how we're seeing people trying to deal with schism now. 
because part of it is obviously you have to appeal to a certain aspect of authority of Scripture. But then there's another part of it where you have to discuss the motives and the motivations behind why people are being schismatic in the first place. So this is what he has to say. For this reason, heresies have been both been committed and continue being committed because a mind that is perverted does not have peace, because bad faith that causes discord does not maintain unity. Indeed, the Lord allows these things to occur and endures them. He permits to remain the natural exercise of free will in order that, while his discernment of the truth examines our hearts and minds, the pure faith of those that are approved might become clear as his light reveals it. The Holy Spirit, through the apostle, forewarns with words, there ought to be heresies in order that the approved might be made manifested among you, in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Thus is the approval of the faithful tested. Those thus, thus are those of bad faith uncovered. Thus, even before the day of judgment, here also already are the souls of the just and unjust separated, and the chaff divided from the wheat. The latter are those who give themselves precedence by their own initiative, in ill-considered conventicles without divine due order, who put themselves in supreme charge without any law of appointment, who, when no one grants them the episcopate, take on for themselves the bishop's name. So he's discussing how people have decided to become pseudo-bishops. Um, the Holy Spirit in the Psalms indicate those who are seated on a chair of the plague. They are the instruments of the plague that corrupts faith, serpents deceiving with their tongue, master craftsmen at corrupting the truth, spewing forth from their uh, infectious tongues their lethal poisons. Their speech twists serpent-like as a malignant disease whose progress in the breasts and in the hearts of individual patients infuses its deadly secretion. So this is how he views um, heretics, they're people who God has allowed to be made to be manifested forth in order for the faithful and the true to show who they are to be manifested as well, and therefore to separate themselves from those people. And he believes that this is a sign, in fact, of the end times. He says, This evil, most faithful brothers, began even in past time, but now the same evil grows in size to threatening proportions of destructiveness. It is a poisonous disease that begins to rise up and spring forth, wrought by heretical perversity and by schisms, even as ought to happen at the world's sunset. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle, forewarned this prediction. In the last days, distressing times will come. There will be men pleasing themselves, proud, puffed up, covetous, blasphemers, refusing to listen to their parents, ungrateful, irreligious, without favorable disposition, without covenant, False accusers without self-control, harsh, not loving good, betrayers, insolent, inflated with lust, loving their own base desires more than God, having a perverted form of religion but denying its power. From amongst these are those who slink into homes and take as trophies their little hussies laden with their sins, who are led by all kinds of desires, always teaching and never reaching the knowledge of the truth. And in the way in which uh, Jamnez and Membrez resisted Moses, so all these resist the truth, but they will not progress very much, for their ignorance will be manifest to all just as in the case of the former. That is from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. So whatever words were said beforehand are being fulfilled, and with the end of the age drawing near, they will come to pass as men are searched and examined along with the times, with our adversary venting his rage more and more. Error deceives, stupidity leads astray, envy kindles, uh, passions make blind, impiety perverts, pride puffs up, discord disturbs, and wrath is hasty. So he believes that schisms are people that we need to separate ourselves from and eventually, hopefully, find peace in that. Um, this is what he has to say about how to make peace in withdrawing from schismatics. The Spirit admonishes us with words. 
Who is the person who wishes for life and loves to see the best days? Hold back your tongue from evil and your lips that they speak not deceitfully. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and follow her. That's from Psalm 33, 13 through 15. The son of peace ought to seek peace and pursue it. The person who recognizes and loves the bond of charity ought to hold in check his tongue from the evil of division. Among his divine instruction and saving teachings already near his passion, the Lord said, in addition, Peace I leave with you, peace may I grant you, John 14, 27. He gives us this inheritance. He promises all the gifts that he has pledged and his reward on condition of the preservation of his peace. If we are the heirs of Christ, let us abide in Christ's peace. If we are the sons of God, we ought to be those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, since they themselves will be called the sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. The sons of God ought to be peacemakers, gentle in heart, guileless in their speech, agreeing in purpose, holding together amongst themselves faithfully in the bonds of one mind. This automatically implies, then, that the people who are, in fact, not of one mind, we ought to separate ourselves from, which is interesting in the way that people have tried to um, discuss what unity is, that unity is about building bridges, not about building walls, and so on. But he actually says the opposite. He says that we ought to uh, build walls just as, for instance, Noah um, died. Uh, th- those outside of the ark died, but the Noah and his family who were inside of the ark were the ones who lived. That the church is a picture of that. We are in the body of Christ, who's being the ark. We are passing through death, where we are saved from that eternal death, whereas those outside of the ark aren't. That the body itself is circumscribed, obviously. The fullness of deity dwells within the body of Christ, and the church is the body of Christ. Therefore, it has to be circum- circumscribed because you can't, a body is a body. It has an ending. It has, you know, you know what a body is. So there are walls. There are naturally walls built in the body. There are not just holes all over the body. We know that. <clears throat> so just letting anything in and anything through is not the way to preserve unity. And I think he's, I think he's correct in this. Um, we need to make sure that there are, as he says, the rock, the foundation that we have is in fact the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of Christ. And in order to um, follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to end up being offensive. That's just p- the way that the gospel is set forth. It's an offense um, to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It's going to be offensive to people. It's going to be ridiculous to some people, but we have to hold on to it regardless of the ways that the culture is moving. So now I'm going to move on to Epistle 59 when he's talking to uh, Cornelius. And uh, what's interesting in this is that he views Cornelius as an equal and a direct um, somebody who has the same amount of power as he does as being the bishop of Carthage, him being the bishop of Rome. He does not give him primacy, and he speaks to him as he doesn't. Um, which, again, I think moves to the point that he didn't find the the, the uh, papacy as being um, having power over the rest of the College of Bishops, but that's another subject. But it says, I have read your letter, dearest brother Cornelius, which you sent by the hand of our brother the acolyte Satyrus. The contents of the letter were both about the love of the brotherhood and ecclesiastical discipline and priestly oversight. You demonstrated therein that Philisimus is no new enemy of Christ, but has already been restrained on account of many serious charges against him. 
It is his condemnation, not only by my verdict, but also that of the majority of my fellow bishops, that has led you to make him an outcast. You recounted that when he came with a gang and a conspiracy of desperate individuals as bodyguard, you made sure that he was expelled from the church in the exercise of the full force of the Episcopal prerogative. From the very church from which previously already he had been expelled with those like him by the exercise of the sovereignty of Christ our Lord and by the uncompromising act of our court, we so acted that the person responsible for a schism for a retribute community should not further violate by the shameful appearance of his presence and by the company contamination with immorality and unchastity the bride of Christ who is incorrupt, holy, and chaste. He was a fraudulent user of money entrusted to him, a sexual abuser of young maidens, and the destroyer and corrupter of many marriages. So he's already calling out publicly sins that were committed publicly by the schism of Felicimus. In the first one, he's dealing more with Novatium. And so now we're dealing with the other type of schism. What happens when people publicly perform sins against the church? How should they be dealt with? One of the first things we get into is publicly admonishing uh, and discussing the judgment of people who publicly sin. So this is what he has to say about this. Uh, That we are repeatedly attacked with insults and shaken by their act of terror is no ground, dearest brother, for abandoning the discipline of the church nor for relaxing the high priestly episcopal judgment of their case. Divine scripture confronts and admonishes us when it says the man who is presumptuous and proud, boasting in himself, will achieve nothing at all, even though he has extended his soul to fill the underworld. Habakkuk 2.5 And again, do not fear the words of a man who is a sinner, since his glory will be in his excrement and in his worms. Today he will be exalted, tomorrow he will be found out. When he has returned to his own dust, thought of him will perish. I saw the impious exalted and lifted up above the cedars of Lebanon, and I went by, and behold, he was not, and I looked for him, and his place had not been found. Psalm 36, 35 through 36. Exalting oneself and an inflated ego and arrogance and proud boastfulness are born not from the authority of Christ who teaches humility, but from the spirit of the Antichrist, against whom the Lord expresses his disapproval through the prophet in these words. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will set my seat above the stars of heaven, I will take my seat on a high mountain in the north above the high mountains. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah thirteen fourteen. He adds these words. Regardless, you will descend to the place of the departed into the depths of the earth, and those who will see you will be amazed because of you, Isaiah fourteen fifteen and 16. Therefore, divine scripture threatens a like punishment to such people in another place and states, For the day of the Lord of hosts is upon the careless and the proud, and everyone who is haughty is lifted up, Isaiah two twelve. So when we see this, we understand what he's saying is that there is a place, Not Novation was saying there's not a place for people who have sinned publicly to be able to come back into the church. They'll be completely uh, removed forever. He is saying that there is a place for them to come back, but they must repent publicly of the public sins that they have committed. And to not do so is also schismatic in and of itself. And so it's necessary for the conscience of leadership for them to actually make sure that people who are over the church can uh, properly discipline those who have publicly sinned. And remember, these people have sacrificed to false gods publicly before Roman proconsuls. So this is what he has to say about that. Those who remain in the house of God are the church. They are the seedbed planted indeed by God the Father. They are as such packed solidly together with thick growth of the wheat. 
They are not as heretics like chaff blown about by the wind-like spirit of the enemy who scatters them. John in his epistle speaks to them. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, 1 John 2.19. Similarly, Paul informs us that we should not be concerned with the wicked perish from the church. Our faith should not be made less because the treacherous have withdrawn. He says, what if certain of them fall away from believing? Will their faithfulness, faithlessness make faith in God empty? Far from it, for God is true, but every man a liar, Romans 3, 3 through 4. Our principal concern, brother, is in agreement with our conscience to make the effort to prevent anyone perishing from the church by our own fault. But if, on the other hand, anyone will perish as a result by his own offense and is unwilling to undergo penance and to return to the church, we cannot in the future, on the day of judgment, be blamed. We have acted in the interests of obtaining their health. The abuses of the loss ought not to influence us, insofar as we have not departed from the straight path and from our definite rule in the light of what the Apostle instructs us. His words are, If I were to please men, I would not be Christ's servant. Galatians 1.10 The issue is whether we seek to gain the favor of men or of God. If indeed we strive and work towards being able to please God, we ought to reject with disdain human insults and slanders. So, in trying to tell people that they must repent and do a public penance, um, they were being then attacked and threatened with slanders and other actual, some of them were actually threatening them physically, which indeed happens um, from time to time. So there is a need for the church to hold its authority and be able to perform uh, public discipline on people who have publicly sinned. And so I'm going to go, we're almost done with this one here. The problem of readmitting public sinners who have not publicly um, repented. He says, If we count the number of those, along with the presbyters and deacons, who in the previous year passed sentence on them, we should find that those that took part then in the judgment examination were very many more than those who are now seen to have been linked with Fortunatus. He was the one who was appointed as, as a, what he would call a pseudo-bishop over Felicimus. You ought to know, dear brother, that almost everyone deserted him after the heretics made him a pseudo-bishop. In the past, his clever tricks always worked as a veil drawn over them. He had made declarations that deceived them in pretense that they were all on the point of immediate return to the church, but after they realized that it was outside the church that a pseudo-bishop had been created, they admitted that they had been deluded and deceived. So then they came to and fro daily and beat upon the church's door. But they are coming back to us who are to render an account for the Lord. We have, as a result, to weigh carefully and conscientiously in the scales those who, who should be received back and readmitted to the church. For with certain of them, it is either their offenses that are the obstacle or the obstinate or firm resistance of the brethren. They could, in any event, not be welcomed back with the danger of scandalizing very many people. For no rotten fruits should be gathered in at the expense of damaging those that are whole and incorrupt. So what happens is when you allow people who have publicly sinned, to continue in their sin and not repent of it, allowing them back in the church then, he says, brings about rotten fruits that can affect the rest of the body. And to do that would be wrong. People need to be able, um, they need to repent of their sin, and they need to do it in a public manner if they have indeed sinned in a public fashion, as these people have. So I'm going to end on the idea of Christian love and separation. And this is kind of really against the ideas that our world puts forward about what love is and what um, togetherness and unity and inclusion are. But I think this is the, the biblical interpretation of how Christian love should be viewed. 
He says, nevertheless, it is our concern. Christian love that influences us in writing, however superfluously, with the object of preventing you joining in exchanges with such characters and mingling with evil persons in social events and discussions. We should remain apart from them whilst they are exiles from the church, since it is written, If he should treat, treat the church with contempt, let him be to you as though he were a pagan or a tax collector. Matthew 18, 17. The blessed apostle not only advises, but orders that we should withdraw from such people. We command you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from all brothers who walk disorderly and not according to the tradition which they have received from us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. There cannot be any common association between good and bad faith. He who is not with Christ, he who is Christ's adversary, he who is hostile to his unity and to his peace, cannot form the same association with us. If they come with prayers, with acts of atonement, let them be heard. If they wave placards of insults and threats, let them be spurned with abhorrence. My prayer for you, dearest brother, is that you will always fare well. So the issues, um, either from people who committed public sins or from people who were trying to exclude anybody from coming back to the church from committing public sins, are what Cyprian found himself in the middle of. And he took the middle ground that people who had committed public sins can rejoin the church if they repent and do public penance, whereas um, people who refused to do that, though, could not. And so for church unity to be held together, he said church unity has to be held together by the rock, which is the foundation of Jesus Christ that he laid down in his Gospels, to do both preach and do the things that are in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Learn what he did, learn what he said, and imitate those things. And if those things are imitated, he being the actual body, Jesus Christ, then if we imitate those things, we will reflect who God is to the rest of the world, and we will keep unity with each other. And so I think this is a very um, pertinent work to today. I mean, it brings up other issues with papal primacy, the role of, of an episcopate type of government. Some people would disagree. Obviously, Baptists would disagree with that. Um, and and, and sort those sorts of things. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I think that it is important that we read how he dealt with schism and how he wanted unity. It sounds very different than the way you hear people talking about today, that unity is completely about the idea of building bridges rather than making walls, and obviously building walls is now kind of a, a, a sort of a term that people use to associate with Trump and so on. So that's a, you know... People don't want to say it for that reason, maybe, because it's a cultural issue now. But the way that the church was built was by saying that to be in the body of Christ, you had to adhere um, to certain doctrines, and you had to adhere to a certain lifestyle. And if you didn't, you were disciplined. That was part of, of church government. That's throughout the scriptures in the New Testament. And it was throughout the early church as well. They had and they had to deal with all of these things just like we are now. Obviously, theirs was much more difficult. Later on, uh, Valerian uh, took over and decided to start up the persecutions again. In 257, Cyprian was arrested. This time, he didn't go into hiding. He just uh, went before the proconsul in Africa. Um, was judged. He, he, they wanted him to give up the presbyters and offer sacrifices. He refused to do it. So in 258, he was uh, martyred, he, he was beheaded. So I think people like this are worth listening to because they died for the faith, obviously. And also they had to deal with very serious situations that we also ha are having to deal with about unity and schism and so on. 
How are we supposed to deal with those things? What is the best way? I think our elders have uh, the answers to this because there's nothing new under the sun. They all had to deal with it. And so we're dealing with it now. And uh, hopefully we can study some of these things, see where they use the Scripture, see what adheres to the Scripture or not, and take the best out of what they have to offer us. And... Um, and use those and apply the scriptures to today, apply what the church fathers have given us, how they dealt with certain situations, I think it would be useful. So that's my um, episode for tonight. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button. If you want to support, the support will be down in the description. Thank you very much. I'll see you next time.